Before we get started today, I wanted to give a quick shout out to my friend Arlen Hamilton and her podcast, Your First Million. Arlen founded Backstage Capital, raised over $10 million, and has invested in over 100 companies led by founders of color, women, and members of the LGBTQ community. Her podcast teaches you how to earn your first million dollars, downloads, and customers. Your First Million is on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else. You can also listen to my conversation with Arlen on Season 1, Episode 7 of The Quest. What's up, guys? You're listening to The Quest, a podcast that inspires founders and creators to seek eternal growth. My name is Justin Kahn, and I'm best known as the co-founder of Twitch. I sit down with your favorite trailblazers in tech, media, and entertainment every week to discover their human stories, discuss the lessons they've learned, and talk about all the shit they've gone through before and after finding success. In light of the recent surge of violence and discrimination against the Asian American community, we dedicated the month of April to highlight and celebrate Asian icons and leaders. My guests included Moses Lowe, Gary Tan, Kelly Mealy, and Eric Nam. These people have had such incredible stories, and I think it's important to showcase these kinds of conversations to help paint members of the Asian community as real people. This is something we need right now more than ever. I realize that there is still a long way to go, and the fight is far from over. You don't have to be a famous CEO or a K-pop star for your voice to matter, so I encourage you to speak up and stand up for each other. We'll all get through this together. All right. My guest today is Jewel, a four-time Grammy-nominated singer, songwriter, actress, and author who has sold over 30 million albums worldwide. Behind her incredibly successful career, though, Jewel has a very inspiring story. She has survived through pain, she's persevered, and she has forgiven. Yeah, you know, there's a, the buffalo is the only animal that goes directly into the storm. And that image really struck me that the quickest way is through, you know, everybody's obsessed with hacks now. You don't get to hack spirituality. You don't get to hack pain. The only genuine shortcut is through, is going toward what you're uncomfortable with. And if you can recalibrate that you start moving toward uncomfortable things, uh, moving toward your anxiety, moving toward the uncomfortable parts of your personality and you start to look at them with curiosity, that's the only, that's the only genuine shortcut. This is one of the most powerful conversations I've ever had on this podcast. And I was grateful that she was willing to be so vulnerable with me in this conversation. We discuss her rough childhood resorting to stealing to survive when she was homeless, how to channel pain, learning to love and forgive And I learned a lot from our conversation, and I hope you can take some of these lessons and apply them to your own life. So without further ado, here's Jewel. So Jewel, thank you for coming on the pod. So tell me about writing your book and how you got started, why you wanted to do it. Where did the impetus come from? Writing's always helped me process pain. When I was young, uh, my mom left when I was eight. My dad took over raising us in Alaska and we started bar singing uh, to make a living. We did five hour sets in different bars all across Alaska. And, you know, when you're young, you just see, you see patterns really clearly, you know, kids see so much more than we give them credit for as adults. But what I basically saw with people in pain um, and people trying to handle pain and the way it looked to me, I'm a really visual thinker, I guess I see in pictures. And so I saw like this grain of sand, I guess you could say of pain. And then I saw people trying to avoid that pain through different types of actions. I saw people drinking and doing drugs and uh, rage and sex and all kinds of stuff. And it was very clear that it never worked. They never avoided pain. And in fact, they just kept heaping these layers of avoidance, which was more pain on top of the original pain. And I watched people die. You know, I watched people die of alcoholism. I watched people die that couldn't afford coffins, you know, and we would sing in the parking lot of the bar as a fundraiser to buy a coffin for these these poor souls. And I just remember making, and my dad, my dad was drinking and he was clearly in a lot of pain. He started being abusive uh, to me and my brothers at that age. And so... I remember thinking, why aren't we taught what to do with pain? I know I was in a lot of pain, but I made myself this promise that I would try and try and handle the pain as it came. You know, that that was kind of the only true shortcut uh, that life offered was 
going, dealing with it right away. And at the time, you know, I was really young. I didn't quite have all this language around it, but um, I realized that when I wrote, I felt better. I realized I could definitely tell my body felt a little better and it took that pain down a little bit. And so that's what I turned to. Um, and then I was amazed that every time I wrote, I saw patterns I didn't know I saw. I I had insights I didn't know that I had. And I just kept writing, um, not because I thought it would be a living, but because it just made me feel better. It made me see things. And seeing things when you're scared and young and vulnerable feels powerful, um, empowering. And so it's what I've always done to get through pain, basically. And when I was 40, I was going through a divorce and I was in a lot of pain. And so I turned to writing and writing that book as a way to process what I was going through. And also because, you know, at 40, I knew everybody deals with a lot of pain and a lot of people don't think they can get through it and we can. And I wanted to share enough of my story that other people understand that we can do this. It really doesn't take a particularly special talent to get through pain. It just takes a certain type of stubbornness, a willingness to keep standing up and asking yourself one simple question. And this question is a hard question, but do you want to die? Because that's going to tell you a plan of action. If you want to die, you're going to have to make a real specific plan. You know, that's going to take a real specific plan to handle that. If you don't want to die, that's going to take a real specific plan to handle that. Um, for me, for whatever reason, I never wanted to die. And that meant I had to ask myself the next question, which is what am I going to do different today than I did yesterday? And can I take notes on it and see if it works? So writing that book was my process of helping myself through that experience, as well as trying to write it in a way that gave people some insight of what to do with pain, because I've had to deal with a lot of it. I love that part of your book where you were kind of talking about your time singing in bars. And I think one of the things you wrote, I love to observe people. I watch love and life play out in a million ways. But one of the best things I learned was this, you don't outrun pain. And I highlighted that because it was such a amazing lesson to learn. I mean, probably very difficult lesson, but it seemed like such an important lesson to learn when you were, you were really young, right? At the time, like um, how, how old were you when you were singing in, in these bars? Uh, it started at age eight. Um, yeah. You know, there's a, the Buffalo is the only animal that goes directly into the storm. And that image really struck me that the quickest way is through the quickest way is yeah. through avoidance you know, everybody's obsessed with hacks now. You don't get to hack spirituality. You don't get to hack pain. No. The only genuine shortcut is through, is going toward what you're uncomfortable with. And if you can recalibrate that you start moving toward uncomfortable things, uh, moving toward your anxiety, moving toward the uncomfortable parts of your personality, and you start to look at them with curiosity, that's the only, that's the only genuine shortcut. It took me a long time to learn that. Like, I think I started learning that when I was in my late 20s and early 30s. How were you able to apply that to your life when you were that young? Because you were dealing with a lot of pain, right? You were dealing with, you know, your dad, your mom left, your your dad was uh, drinking and abusive sometimes. How did, did you kind of process and know all that then? Or, or was that something that took you a while to learn? My languaging around it is obviously much different now. At the time, you know, I think when I was eight, I just knew you couldn't avoid pain. I knew that. I knew you could not run it. And I promised myself to try and handle it as it came, which I didn't have great skills for, you know. But telling the truth was a big part of that. Now, I only did it in a notebook. You know, I'd started lying a lot at that age. Uh, I started stealing at that age. So it wasn't like my behaviors were great or perfect, but, you know, I was lying to try and make myself seem more lovable than I was to seem more perfect than I was. You know, a lot of, we all kind of start to do that. We all start to alter our authenticity in an effort to be accepted. When, when you're raised in an abusive household, you're trying to figure out that puzzle of why doesn't my dad be, why isn't he nice to me? But I realized, you know, I remember, it's funny, I remember where I was, I was walking up these stairs in this little cabin I was raised in, and I was, I was struck by this image of Hansel and Gretel, and I was like, if I keep lying, I won't remember who I am, and it 
it, it paralyzed me that Scott, that thought scared me immensely. And I thought about like breadcrumbs back to who I was as I was starting to construct this other version of who I was. And I went to writing again. And so I, I made this promise that I would always tell the truth in one place. It's funny. It brings tears to my eyes and that it would be in my notebook. And nobody ever read that notebook, but I told the truth there. And it was hard, but what a skill to build on later because that ended up being a very foundational thing. Just like the idea of not trying to outrun pain became a foundational thing. So I didn't know what to do with these pieces yet, but for some reason, intuitively, I knew that these things, my survival depended on them. It felt that way. And it sounded like from, from your book that through your life, you've had all of these adaptive mechanisms of control uh, to like give your, you know, to, I guess, I think you wrote it as like brilliant resilience, but it sounds like things like stealing or lying were ways to try to adapt to your environment. One thing I really loved is that you wrote about them serving you at some points in your life. And then at other points in your life, later in your life, you realized, oh, this isn't, this behavior isn't serving me anymore. And that really resonated for me because, you know, I felt like in my life, I had all of these things that I wanted to impress other people or be, you know, big deal. And so I like really worked hard and tortured myself about like trying to be successful. And then at a certain point, I w- you know, I was successful and I was like, why am I, you know, torturing myself every day about this? Like inside, you know, mentally, why am I doing it? It's not serving me anymore. Um, yeah. So I'd love to hear your process with, with that throughout your life. Yeah. You know, psychologically, we, we all want love. We know intuitively, instinctively, animalistically that we depend on connection for our survival. We need to connect. If we don't know how to connect in healthy ways, we'll try to connect in in less than healthy ways. We don't really know that. It's not like a real conscious thing. But it's just the ingeniousness of our ability to survive. We will get our needs met, whether it's through healthy or unhealthy means. We will try to get our needs met and we'll do the best we can. Some of them are, you know, what we would classically call the coping mechanism that aren't great. Stealing is not a great coping mechanism. It did make me feel in control. It made me feel like I was caring for myself. It really was an honest, as funny as that sounds, attempt to meet my needs in the best way I knew how. It just wasn't a great way. But I had to learn to look at my behaviors with a lot of kindness and compassion, even though I wasn't raised with those two things. Because otherwise, you don't get to see them. You start to hide from yourself, right? Your own psyche camouflages your behaviors from yourself because you're so judgmental and so shaming of your own behaviors that you can never stop to look at your behaviors because you know psychologically it's it's dangerous basically if you're so mean to yourself that you're going to beat yourself up the second you see a behavior you're not going to ever see your behaviors so learning again to use writing suspending judgment and using pure observation helped me start seeing some of these patterns that were unhealthy, like negative coping mechanisms. I didn't know what to do with them right away, but I could see them. And at least I knew they weren't great. I wasn't kidding myself about them, but I also didn't know how to abstain. And then I realized there was a time, I think it's when I was homeless, that I started to look at those negative patterns um, as a triad. I called them a triad. I realized there was three steps. There was a before, a during, and an after. The before something scared me, we would now use the word triggered. Um, And then there was a behavior stealing. I could see that. And then there was an after. I got a reward. It's actually called a habit loop. I didn't know that at the time. And so being homeless was scary, triggered me. I behaved by stealing because that made me feel in control and nurtured. And then my reward was a biochemical rush. And so I realized to change this habit loop, meditation isn't enough. Meditation's great. All mindfulness is, is being consciously present. But what are you going to do with it? It's like getting your car out of fifth gear or off of autopilot, getting it into neutral. Neutral won't take your car somewhere else new. It's an important first step to getting somewhere new. So meditation alone isn't enough. And I started realizing that when I was 18, that I had to create things that created new patterns. Um, and this idea of nature versus nurture. And could I re-nurture myself? Could I rewire myself? And so I looked at that triad and I couldn't change being homeless right away, but I could change my behavior. And so I went back to writing because that was just 
one thing that had been really consistent in my life. But it wasn't really exciting. You know, when I wrote the types of neurochemicals my body received were calmative. They weren't excitatory. And so it didn't feel as exciting, but I actually just, that was where will comes in. I forced myself not to steal, you know, um, now it takes mindfulness. There's a process to it. I can talk to you about it. It, it doesn't happen overnight because my awareness didn't grow overnight. Um, I was so disassociated and so anxious all the time that I sometimes didn't wake up, consciously wake up until after I'd stolen something. It was, it was kind of like, like, oh my God, I did it again. Yeah. Because some part of me was just on this autopilot drive, especially when I got triggered. Then with awareness, learning to practice being aware, which, you know, I just created these little exercises. I can talk about that separately. But then I started noticing while I was stealing, but I didn't want to stop. I still stole it but I was aware I was doing it. And that was progress. Then I started to notice before I wanted to steal something, but I couldn't stop it. I still stole it, but at least I was gaining awareness. Then the very last step was noticing when that feeling was coming of me wanting to do it. And could I intervene with another tool? And that's the thing is you can't abstain from behavior. We live in a world of action. So you have to replace behavior with behavior. And it takes a lot of self-awareness and development of self-awareness to do it. So I eventually was able to replace dealing with writing, which turned into a career. Bizarrely, <laughs> you know, it wasn't like what I was going for at the time. It was like an amazing side effect of just trying not to steal. And then you, you know, one of the things I was also struck by by your story is um, how conscious you were of like what type of deal you were going to take and what you wanted. You know, the, you wrote that you were offered a million dollar you know, deal and and turned it down. And I was just wondering, like, and at the time you were homeless, right? So like, how did you, how did you do that? Like, how did you like have the presence of mind of saying like, here's what I want in the long term to like resist, you know, the temptation of just a kind of quick solution? I think it goes back to kind of the stuff I learned from living off the land when I was young. I was really lucky to be raised in Alaska in nature because no matter how abusive my household was, I was able to get outside in nature and nature's a great teacher. Nature taught me how to be human. It parented me. If you watch closely, you learn, all, I just don't know if there's anything you won't learn from nature. Um, like I remember sitting on the cliffs and seeing the tide coming in and out I was raised on a bay. I was really sad. And I watched the tide and I was like, everything comes in and out, like nothing's permanent, which isn't a revelation, but it just hit me in the right way that sometimes the tide's just out. And I remember writing that down and that would become one of the models I lived by. It was impermanence. I didn't know that word. I hadn't read that philosophy, but nature taught me impermanence. And that's the beauty of it. Everything changes if you give it enough time. And that helps when you're going through really dark times, because I can't tell you how many times I had to buckle myself in, literally like sit in a seat through a panic attack and go, everything changes if you get enough time. Sometimes the tide's just out. It will always come back in. And people who are suicidal, one of the things they really struggle with is this fixation that it, of permanence. And that one thought really helped me through incredible dark times because it has to change. It's physics. Everything has to change. It's entropy. I mean, really. And watching trees, you know, I realized that hardwood grows slowly and it lasted a long time. And I was like, I want to be that. How do you be a hardwood tree? And that goes back to there's no shortcuts. The only genuine shortcut is through. The only genuine shortcut is doing the work. And because I already kind of had these I'd say life mottos, like things I wanted to live by, like hardwood grows slowly. That by the time I got to the record deal, even though I was 18, I read a book called Don Passenheim's uh, Everything You Need to Know About the Music Business. I got it out of the library and I learned how the deals were structured and it was a loan. And once I figured that out, all you have to do is plug that into your value system, you know, or my value system, which was there's no shortcut. The idea of a homeless kid getting a million dollars as a folk artist at the height of grunge, I mean, it doesn't spell success. You know, that doesn't spell life's going to be easy forever. 
that spells tremendous pressure to me. It spelled borrowing money that I owed back, which you do. Uh, the, it's it's an, an advance and you owe it back through record sales. That meant I had to sell so many records that I not only covered the cost of whatever it took to promote it, but I then had to sell enough to recoup a million dollars before I would ever see any more money. It was like having a million dollar bounty on my head. And I couldn't handle that type of pressure. You know, if art is like your baby, you have to protect your baby and do right by it. You don't leverage your baby for a million dollars. Like that just doesn't seem like a great idea. Um, and I wanted a long-term career. I didn't want a million dollars. I wanted a 60-year career. And again, that's a hardwood grows slowly mentality. And that means you have to do the work. You have to figure out long-term plans uh, that hopefully put you in a position to realize a very long-term goal. So you kept your footprint pretty small and lightweight. Like you you didn't even move into a house at first, right? You, you just uh, kind of grinded shows and worked on your music and... I remember you wrote in your book that you basically kept your overhead light so that you couldn't be cut by, by the music label. And uh, that really worked for you to like really grow this, you know, get the time to develop the, your, your fan base. Yeah. Um, you know, I turned down the money, but I did ask them to pay rent on an apartment uh, for my mom and my brother and I. I bought a used car, um, bought her a used car. And then kept my expenses low, you know, and I, I made this record. It was a folk record. Um, again, because I had learned that honesty is the most important thing, my authenticity. I really loved artists. I had heroes of artists that did that. Anais Nin, um, her journals are incredible. I remember reading them at a really young age, but being so touched that she was so honest. I mean, it's not a cute life she led. She was having affairs with people. She was cheating on her husband. I mean, she wrote about all of it. And I was so thankful that somebody told the truth. Same with Bukowski. Um, I found the heroic because most people use art as propaganda. You see it with success too. You know, you see very successful CEOs that (laughs) are very invested in keeping the image that they have it all together. Well, nobody has it all together. So you're forcing yourself into a position of being found out and trying to hide so you're not found out. That's a tremendous psychological strain, you know. So the artists that are trying to be perfect and perfectly beautiful and perfectly happy end up, you know, you just succumb to the weight of trying to uphold a complete myth because nobody is. So I wanted to make this really honest record. It was a folk record. I didn't have much of a band on it because I didn't know how to play with the band. I didn't want fancy producers to come to make me sound more experienced than I was because that would be a lie. And I knew I had it. I knew, I knew I was in for a rough ride because Nirvana and Soundgarden were everything. And I was very earnest. I was very sincere. I was talking about hope. I was talking about the fact that, all right, I don't want to kill myself. That means I have to believe in something. That's scary. Because cynicism is the most cowardly, easy out you can have. And frankly, there's no true cynic alive. They've killed themselves. So all a living cynic is, is somebody that's pretending in order to keep themselves, make themselves less vulnerable. You know, you're just, you're hiding it. And so I went out bald-faced optimist, you know, bald-faced realist, but hopeful. And fighting for that hope because I was fighting to stay alive and, you know, stay alive without it. And it was a rough road. And so I never got a tour bus. I always had a rental car. I did five and six shows a day. I was hoping for punk bands and the Ramones and keeping my expenses very low, which ended up really paying off because the record failed. It just tanked. It did not do a single thing for over a year. And I definitely would have been dropped hands down for sure. Oh, there's so much in there I want to talk about. Like the, the vulnerability, like I, I agree with you 100% that like it's so many people mask their vulnerable. They're not vulnerable. Right. And they, they kind of have this, it's like endemic in the startup world. It's like, everybody's like always doing well or crushing it. And it was when I was living like that, it was exhausting. You know, I was constantly comparing myself to other people. I was constantly thinking I'm not doing well enough, but I have to like, I, I want to really represent that I'm doing like amazingly. Um, 
And it was only much later in life that I realized if I just, I should just be honest about my experience. Like, here's what's going well, here's what's going terribly. Like, here are the things, mistakes I've made. And when I started being honest, it was like the easiest thing. It was like, like, I, like this weight was off my shoulders and I kind of was like, why did I never do this before? You know, and I find that and people come up to me, they're like, wow, you're so authentic. You're so honest about your experience. Thank you. And uh, it's, it's pretty incredible how much, how small of a thing it is and how easy it is once you start just telling your experience as it is, instead of having to represent that it's something that you're, you're, you're not. And I wonder almost like why more people don't do that. You know, it's, it's yeah, a hard it's first step, funny. but it's, yeah, it gets easier over time. Yeah. We've built an entirely artificial structure of a paradigm, an archetype of people pretending they're good, they're happy, and they always knew the answers. And so when a young person comes up in that, they go, if I don't have all the answers, something's wrong with me. Because everybody in the system I want to be in says they've always known. And so then they have to pretend because otherwise they won't get funded, you know, and the fake it till you make it and, and that whole thing. And it's sad because it's all just an artificial structure. It's not true for one single person. And the more people talk about it, honestly, the more they go, Oh, I mean, the definition of an entrepreneur, same as a musician, you don't know what you're doing. It's never been done. It's, it's impossible to know what you're doing. It's, it's, it's just, it hasn't been done. You're trying to break new ground. You're trying to make something up out of nothing. And that means you spend a lot of time bushwhacking, figuring, you know, figuring it out, problem solving. Did I do it right? Going back a few steps, listening. That's a great skill set. Um, it's so valuable. And yeah, the more people talk about it, the more they'll realize, oh, okay, I don't have to know all the answers. I just have to keep listening and trying and figuring it out. It's a messy process. Yeah. Failing is part of the process of being an entrepreneur and probably an amazing artist, I would, I would guess. Um, if you don't experiment with things, you're never going to get anywhere new. I, but I remember this, I, I always think of this episode of Charlie Rose that I watched like maybe 10 years ago where the founders of MySpace were were on, when, when MySpace was a thing, they were on Charlie Rose and he was asking him, oh, you know, did you have this plan for the beginning? Did you know it was going to be this big? And one of them said, yeah, we mapped it out in the very beginning. We wrote everything we were going to do down and it's gone exactly. That's how it's exactly gone. You know, it's, it's played out like for the past five years or whatever, it's been exactly what we wrote down in the beginning. And I was like, that is, there's no way that's possible. Like, I don't believe that at all, but I feel like there's this pressure for, for people to say like, Oh, I, I've got it all figured it out. I've, I've figured it all out from the beginning. You know? Yeah. It's one of the addictions, you know, that need to know everything. Um, yeah. And the need to know the outcome. And let's pretend that is how it worked for them. The reason it failed is because they wanted to stick to a plan. And I'm, I don't know these people, but I'm just yeah. saying, let's pretend, you know, all the stars aligned and it, you did, you know, just everything was right place, right time. And it worked out. Nature, you know, is changing and we have to be adaptable. We have to read the environment. We have to read the weather as it changes. And that's one of the problems with business plans is you can make a business plan. Doesn't mean it's how it's going to play out. And if you're so rigidly fixated on, I can't start a process until I know the end outcome because I'm trying to solve for an end outcome, you're just not going to innovate, you know? It's a much more innovative thing to say, I have to get from point A over there. If you know, if you need to know all the answers ahead of time, you're going to build a machine that's already been built. But if you let go of needing to know the outcome and you just stay hyper-focused on this process, you might invent a spaceship. You know, you're going to invent something new to solve that problem. It's much scarier because we want to know the outcome before it's done and said, but you're just not going to innovate. It's not going to be great. I 100% agree. Um, I want to go back to the skills that you were talking about. I realized I skipped over those. You talked about the skills to build awareness and um, build consciousness about what, what your behaviors were. Can you talk about maybe a little bit more of a, something that's actionable for the audience? You know, how, did, how, did, how did you uh, apply those to your life? So I'm in a dressing room one day and I am trying to steal this dress. And I am trying to shove it down my pants and I see myself in the mirror of this dressing room and I saw what I looked like. 
I was a statistic. Like this ambitious goal when I was 15 of not being a statistic didn't work. Even though I really, I really did try. Um, and I avoided a lot of things. You know, I didn't end up on a stripper pole. I guess that was good. But my life still wasn't going really great. And I just realized I would die or end up in jail if I didn't do something. And for some reason, I remembered this quote that uh, happiness doesn't depend on who you are or what you have. It depends on what you think. I remember being very struck by that and thinking, all right, I don't have anything left but my thoughts. I have to turn my life around one thought at a time. But I was so disassociative and anxiety that I couldn't witness my thoughts in real time. I couldn't, you know, I would try and sit down and I couldn't even hardly really write in real time about like a present current experience. And so I, I thought about it and I thought, well, I'll just watch my hands because it's like your thought cool down, slow down into action. You know, every thought has to get actuated by your hands. So I was like, what if I watch my hands for two weeks and I'll take notes and then maybe I'll figure out what I'm thinking. And so for two weeks, I just watched everything my hands did. I still stole. I still, you know, it wasn't, I didn't change behavior yet. At the end of the two weeks, I kind of looked through everything I did and I guess there was a really obvious takeaway. I didn't believe in myself. I no longer thought I could hold a job down or stay healthy long enough. I had bad kidneys uh, to hold a job down. But the much more interesting thing is my anxiety was virtually gone in two weeks. It was shocking side effect. It was like discovering. I mean, it was just mind blowing. What I had stumbled on was presence, right? I had stumbled on learning how to stop taking the past and project it into the future. And I did it by becoming so obsessed and curious because I was following my hands around. It forced me to be present. So I kind of stumbled on a mindfulness exercise. And that word around wasn't around at the time, the word. Um, but it felt better. And I noticed my body felt better. And so I just, because I had established writing as this real tool of mine up to that point, I kept writing, you know, I'd make notes and then I started to notice there's only two ways my body feels. My body either feels relaxed and open or closed and scared. You could say dilated and contracted. And then I realized that's the only two states your body can be in. There's a myriad of feelings, emotions, actions, thoughts, but there's only two states your body can be in. That was a really cool revelation because then I started to realize you can't be in two states at one time. So no. I was either always dilated and open or contracted. So then I started taking notes. When I felt open and relaxed, I would ask myself, what was I just thinking, feeling, or doing? And I had three columns in my notebook, feeling, thinking, doing. And so I'd write down, I was feeling this, I was thinking this, I was doing this. And I would just do it every single time. And then every time I felt scared, contracted, I would ask, what was I thinking, feeling, or doing? So I had a, these columns of things that led to dilation and things that led to contraction. And then I, when I realized you can't be in two states at one time, I wanted to see if I was in a tight, contracted state, could I force my system to dilate by participating in something off the list that dilated me? And it worked. Um, I remember the first time I was able to ward off a panic attack. Um, it was... I mean, it changed my life to this day. Like that one moment changed the trajectory of my life. Learning I could ward off a panic attack and I did it with gratitude. And I was on a street corner. I felt a panic attack coming on, which again, it, it took me months to become present enough to feel the signs of a panic attack coming on. Because just like with the stealing, I'd wake up after it or in the throes of it during it. Or see that it was happening, about to happen, but not being able to stop it. So it's, it's months of work, right? To just gain awareness in one area. But I'd gotten to that point. I felt the panic attack starting to come on. I was on a street corner in Pacific Beach, San Diego. And gratitude had always worked well for me. And so I went, I wonder if I can force myself out of this contracted state by being profoundly grateful. The trick is it can't be a mental thing of like, I'm grateful I'm alive. I'm glad that I, it can't be a mental exercise. It has to stimulate your entire system where that whole cascade happens. You know, your whole body and mind are involved. 
And that was just sort of the groundwork of a lot of exercises I started to develop to work with specific things. I call it mindfulness in motion because, again, meditation won't change your life. It helps you build the muscle of awareness, presence. But what are you going to do with that presence? How are you going to change your life? That's when it gets really exciting. I love that. That's amazing. It's almost like... um... Reminds me of like Ramana John inventing calculus by himself, like in an Indian village, you know, like going through and like deriving all of math, you know, you're, you kind of went through this process of, through your own experience, you know, becoming, putting yourself on a witness state and being the observer, and then figuring out how to like, uh, act skillfully, right from the, like all of these different mindfulness concepts like you went through all the different stages and and reprogrammed yourself without any guidance or teachers just kind of from observing your own mind that's incredible so tell me about the foundation and and how you know i I love we met because i I came to your wellness virtual wellness festival and I, i love what you're doing in terms of kind of spreading this message of the things that you've learned and teaching other people how seems like it's a big part of your life from the outside. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, somewhere along the line in humanity's evolution, we stopped learning what to do with pain. Life started traumatizing us. Can you say life's more traumatic than, you know, when we were hunter-gatherers? I don't know. I mean, I think probably being chased by mastodons is pretty <laughs> traumatic. So why is that? If we're the most progressed society that, that, that's ever lived... Why are we killing ourselves at rates that's unprecedented? Do we get to call this progress? I don't know the definition of progress, but we might want to rethink it. What the heck makes us so advanced? Why do we think we're so progressed and so advanced? When, to me, a really important metric is, are we happy? We're killing ourselves. I mean, right now they're saying one in four kids are contemplating suicide. we're, We're missing something. And our desire to be faster, quicker, I don't know, richer, we're missing the things that actually make us feel like we want to be alive. (laughs) That's a real problem. Somewhere when we left a village system would be my guess. And we began to move and conglomerate into cities. We lost a lot of support structures. We lost access to our wisdom keepers, our medicine men, our healers. And then from earth, right, away from nature, we stopped having a relationship to a lot of things. And we can't value what we don't have a relationship with. You know, our earth wouldn't be in the state the earth is in if more people had a relationship with nature. And so if I could summarize all that as saying we went from a species that lived in connection, in relationship, to a species that lived out of connection and out of relationship, out of relationship with ourselves, we find our own feelings very confusing, out of a relationship with our earth, out of a relationship with community, with our parents. It's a breakdown of connection. And it's a society that became very obsessed and invested in distraction. And it's where a lot of our money is made. We make money off of things that distract us. It's very addictive. And then the more pain you get in, you want to be distracted all the more. And so it's this amazing, vicious cycle. So when I was going through my divorce at 40, I thought, can I figure out how to scale connection? Can I figure out how to scale wisdom? Can I try and figure out how to help people with you know, if it, it looks complex because you have Me Too and gun violence and opiate addiction and nationalism and racism and all these things. They look like separate things. But if you really study it, they all come down to mental health, emotional health and connection. Because if you're connected and living in your heart, as dumb as it sounds, you're not going to leverage a coworker. You're not going to let yourself be leveraged by a coworker. If you're in connection with yourself and you have a good emotional health, you're not going to litter where you're living. You're not going to beat somebody up. You're not, you know, all these things get fixed. It's just not a magic pill. (laughs) But I started to see if I could develop systems to try and basically scale wisdom, scale connection. Um, And I want to do it for every age demographic if I can. So working on a mindfulness cartoon for children that teach kids a little value toolkit and that that solves problems by taking three deep breaths, 
becoming the observer and then applying a value to it and tackling that problem. Um, the wellness festival is that we're trying to democratize information um, of what it takes to be a happy whole human. That's a beautiful mission. I, I love that. Um, <laughs> one last thing I wanted to ask you about was forgiveness. Um, I, I loved in your book that, you know, you have been through these experiences with, with your father growing up um, being abusive and then your mother stealing money from you when you were, you know, as you kind of made it as a, as a, singer but you seem to write like one thing you wrote about your dad is that you have so much compassion for your dad and i was struck by you know most people who go through these experiences would be like you know very resentful harboring a lot and it seemed like you were able to release it all and have a relationship actually build a relationship with your father who um you know and and kind of move on and, and i'd love for you to just talk a little bit about kind of forgiveness and and Move, being able to to release all of the trauma that you had have experienced, you know, had experienced when you were younger. Yeah, it's a big topic. It's a beautiful topic. <laughs> I don't think I've been a very compassionate person either. In all honesty, it wasn't something I was raised around, and it wasn't something I was with myself either. I pushed myself real hard my whole life. Push, push, push. Beat myself up, you know. And honestly, say compassion is something I'm just now starting to understand, and I'd love to talk about it, but I might put it toward the end of some other stuff. But if I forget, help me remember. Yeah. I have always been competitive. I kind of like to win. <laughs> it's just kind of part of my personality. I can either really work for you or really become a problem. <laughs> Luckily, I started to learn to be competitive with myself, um, to do my best work. The reason I'm talking about competitiveness is the best revenge is a life well-lived. If you really want to get back at other people, figure out how to be happy. It's, it's the most radical thing you can do. It's the best booyah. It's the best in your face. You know, it's the best. <laughs> I know that sounds kind of funny, but how do I describe it? It was like when you're abused as a kid, you internalize your abuser, right? My, I no longer had my dad to deal with. But I internalized his voice, the self-abuse, the meanness, the nastiness, the watching every little thing. I became that person in my head and I treated myself that way. And so it's like getting abused twice. You know, it, when you live with bitterness forever, when you let somebody's betrayal, like my mom, if I let that make me bitter the rest of my life, that's letting that win. <laughs> and that yeah. might sound like a weird way to say it, but if you become bitter, you've lost. If you have lost the capacity to love, you've lost. You know, we ha I have to define winning as being more loving, more kind, more open. Now, not dumb, not naive. We, we must become more discerning to avoid these things from happening again. But I have to become a more exceptional person for all this to make sense. I, and I, I kind of don't know how to it, it makes forgiving easier <laughs> um, because in order for you to let go of the bitterness, let go of the anger, you're going to have to cut your ties to it. And what a grudge does, right? The opposite of forgiveness is a grudge or a resentment. What that does is pretend it's a balloon and pretend my mom betraying me is a balloon. It's a red balloon. I would love to disassociate from that balloon, right? I'd love to no longer have to deal with that balloon. But the more I fixate on it and I say, that balloon's the enemy. That balloon is the worst thing that's ever happened. That balloon is the incarnate of the devil. I'm fixating on it. What it does is keep me in relationship to it. Coming back to relationship, my anger and my resentment keep me in a relationship to what I say I want to be free from. Does that mean I really want to be free from it? Or is that just some false baloney? <laughs> because I seem very invested in wanting to keep my relationship with it. The very frightening thing about forgiveness is it takes you out of relationship with it. That's really scary, especially if it's a parent. Because psychologically, letting a parent go by forgiving them, your psyche knows what's up. Your psyche knows you're about to cut that string. And I want nourishment. Every human does. Every human wants energy to be fed. 
And if we can't get it through love and positivity, we'll get it through negativity and abuse. And so when you cut that, you're cutting your relationship to it. That's why most people don't want to forgive. Because if you forgive the person that hurt your child, you're left no longer being able to fixate on this bad thing. You now have to deal with your feelings. You now have to deal with everything you're going through. And it's a mess. It's not like a cute thing to stop focusing on the balloon and look inside yourself and go, this is kind of a shit show in here. But it's the first step to being able to deal with the shit show so that you can then let go of the anger and those things so that you can then go on to saying, what kind of person do I want to become? Um, So I call forgiveness the needle that knows how to mend. It's repurposing that thread that connected you to something hurtful and using it to start sewing up your own little wounds. The thing is, people confuse forgiveness with condoning. And this is where we start to get into compassion a little bit. People think if I forgive my dad, it means I have to say what he did was good. That's a whole separate thing. That's like saying an apple is an orange. Those are two different topics. One doesn't have anything to do with the other. Um, What my dad did wasn't fun. Didn't mean I got my needs met. But trauma is a body's inability to understand, right? Trauma, if we just want to get super simple about it, is an experience that's so overwhelming, we don't know how to understand it. And so we hang on to it. It becomes sort of cemented into our psyche and begins to affect our nervous system, have these really long-term effects. So to start to understand is to start to unwind trauma. And there's all kinds of tools and exercises that, that I developed around it, but What compassion does is create space. It's a container. We need containers to begin to have room to understand. So with my dad, as I began to learn about his childhood, the absolute horrors of his childhood, that man did so much better with me than was done with him. Now, again, that doesn't mean I'm condoning it. It doesn't mean it was enough. It doesn't mean my needs got met. It doesn't mean it wasn't scary. That's a whole separate topic. What it does mean is I can start to understand it. That starts to alleviate trauma. That starts to, it doesn't make the story of my childhood different, right? The facts, but how I interpret that story changes. And that's very empowering because now it means the story used to be my dad didn't love me. The truth is my dad didn't know how to love me. Now that's a that'll that's that'll shift the trajectory of somebody's life. If I had understood that younger, I would have made different decisions because I no longer would have thought I'm unlovable. My dad doesn't love me because I'm unlovable. I better start changing who and what I am. It starts to make you go, oh my gosh, my dad doesn't know how to love. I need to go figure out how to be loved by somebody that's capable or from myself. So all that to say, compassion, what I've really come to realize about it is it just creates space. And if the world is in need of one thing right now, it's just some compassion and some understanding. We're so invested in trying to be heard that we're not creating any compassion. And that's the problem with cancel culture is it doesn't allow change. And you have to ask yourself, do I want to beat somebody up or do I want to help somebody change? Because you don't get both. So cancel culture has a false belief that says, if I cancel you, if I deny you any kind of air to breathe relationship, basically, I'm saying I'm going to not afford you relationship, then I think it'll change your behavior. Well, it doesn't. It makes people more entrenched in their behavior. That's great. I was, I actually had thought about that earlier when we talked about um, resilience, you know, and, and, and kind of learning to be resilient. It's like a lot of our internet culture now is, is kind of very fragile. Actually, we, we don't want to hear things that make us uncomfortable. We want to push them away or cancel them or, you know, shout them down. And that is that really uh, the problem with that, right? Is that it's, it's actually making us less resilient to like be able to be in situations that may be triggering and be able to sit with that and be like, Oh, I'm uncomfortable. Like, why is that? Or maybe I'm learning something myself or even just being able to sit with that discomfort, which is not, like you said, it's like, not that we condone those actions or what those other people are saying. It's just that 
you know, you're always, the human experience is like, you're going to have uncomfortable situations. And if we're, you know, if we kind of train ourselves to be fragile, then we're going to be fragile. If we train ourselves to be resilient, then we'll be able to, to kind of be in that full human experience. We are. We're making ourselves very precious. We're precious. Yeah. And that isn't what we want. It's not going to help us. Um, it's not why humanity got where humanity is, right? We didn't get here by being more precious. We got here by being more resilient. Cool. Well, Jewel, that's, that's what I had. I really appreciate you having this conversation with me. It's a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I feel like I learned a lot. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> really fun. Cool. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jewel. Here's a couple key takeaways and lessons that really resonated with me. Number one, the eye of the storm is the calmest place. There's no shortcut to dealing with pain, and it isn't something you can just outrun forever. The quickest way is directly through the storm because peace is not something you can just hack. The only genuine shortcut is going towards what you're uncomfortable with. Now, this is one of the most painful and difficult lessons that I learned myself in my 30s, but Jewel learned it as a child. Shift your mindset towards your anxiety and move directly at the uncomfortable parts of yourself with curiosity. Two, be present. Jewel struggled with constant anxiety because she felt she was no longer in control of her actions. She became dissociated from the present, dwelling on past traumas and projections of the future. But the simple act of watching her hands for two weeks allowed her to be mindful of the world around her, which gave her agency and helped her control her anxiety. And lastly, forgiveness is powerful. Grudges and resentments are like balloons that we hold on to. They expand as we keep dwelling on them. The only way to be free from them is to let go or pop those balloons. Forgiveness doesn't mean you have to condone horrible actions, but it does help you develop compassion, which creates space to process and alleviate your trauma. And this is one of the most important ways that you can find peace. If you like this episode, make sure to drop us a rating on Apple Podcasts and comment what you've learned. Also, check out all Quest-related content at listen.justin.quest. Thank you for tuning in. I love you guys, and I'll see you next episode.